do have to say, I don't, but I'm going to. Uh, our text today should be, uh, my opinion, Genesis 1, 32 through 34, because uh, it's just really weird that they did a chapter division where they did. Chapters and verses are not inspired, uh, but that's just a personal, I have no clue why they divided in the middle of a section. Uh, but it's not, if you look for Genesis 1, 32, you won't find it in any Bible that I know of. So our text is Genesis 2. We got already into the second chapter of 50, guys. This is great. Once we hit narratives, we're going to go a lot faster, uh, maybe. It is funny what we take for granted sometimes, like a seven-day work week. The timing of our days each day, that's easy to understand. It takes 24 hours for the earth to rotate around on its axis one day. Uh, the timing of our years makes sense. It takes about 30, 365 days for the earth to orbit around the sun, one year. Uh, but where did a seven-day week come from? Uh, in studying this week, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, I discovered that a seven-day week was practiced all the way back by the ancient Babylonians, and it was uh, definitely an ordinary practice in the Roman Empire also. So we would think, oh, just everybody always has, but that's not true. In ancient Egypt, they did not have a seven-day work week. They had a 10-day work week. Nine days of work and one day of rest. So we have to remember, and we're going to keep reminding you, uh, when we look at Genesis to understand it truthfully, we need to remember the context in which it was written and to, to whom it was written, to the Israelites coming out of Egypt. So when they received Genesis 1, Genesis 2, the culture and context that the Israelites had lived in uh, for 400 years before God rescued them was the Egyptian context. And so even though Egyptian citizens would have enjoyed one day of rest out of every 10, that doesn't mean that the Israelites, especially in the last generations before the Exodus, that those Israelites would have enjoyed any rest at all. Slaves typically don't get any days off. For generation after generation, all they would have known was work. Ceaseless, restless, hard, miserable work under a tyrant ruler and his slave drivers. So how strange and unfamiliar it must have been when God provided bread, what's called manna, for his people in the wilderness and introduced a foreign concept to them. Don't work on the seventh day of the week. On day one of this introduction in the wilderness, God rained bread down on his people for them to eat. They gathered enough for that day, and if they kept any to the next day, I love certain phrasing in scripture, I just absolutely love, and if they kept the bread to the next day, it bred worms and stank. It's good. Like, that's, that's, mm, I, I can smell that. The next day, day two, after that, they would gather bread, they would eat it, and then they would have disposed of the extra. Who wants that sitting around the tent? And then the same thing would happen on day three and day four and day five. They're starting to figure things out. Go pick it up in the morning. Don't leave it to the next day. Well, now we come to Exodus 16, verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread. They've been told to do this. Uh, and this is how it reads. This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow, the seventh day, 
is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil. All that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. Remember, what, five days ago, it bred worms and stank. You don't want that in your, in your tent, and, uh, but they're told to do it this time. So they laid it aside till morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Later, the Lord would codify this into law for the Israelites at Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments and expound on it in other parts of the law. We heard that read a little bit for us today, Exodus 34. Uh, But this is what I want you to keep in mind, to have the context, the Israelites, in reading Genesis. Resting on the seventh day was an unfamiliar concept to the Israelites based off of their time in Egypt. It's unfamiliar to them. And this... The Israelites experienced a practice of rest on the last day of a seven-day week before they would have received the book of Genesis and read about God's creation week. So they were living a seven-day work week with a day of commanded rest before they read Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Observing a seventh-day rest called the Sabbath preceded receiving the written word, the written record of God's word to them. But then, having observed a seven-day work week, ending in a day of rest for some time, they then hear Moses link their practice to God's practice. Okay? They've done it. Then they hear about it, and they read what God has done to learn about what they have been doing. Okay? Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Continuing along the pattern that Keith and I have followed the last couple weeks, this morning we're going to start in Genesis and then take a journey through the rest of the Bible. I joked with him that we should set up books of the Bible bingo cards and see how many of those we can tick off over the course of our Genesis series. I've never referenced more passages outside of the book that we're going through than we have now, but that's sort of the point uh, because we're taking Genesis and seeing where it points us forward through the rest of Scripture. The four points about God and rest that I want to walk you through today from this text and other texts, because really we're going to survey a number of things. Four points. God patterns rest. God previews rest. God provides rest. And God promises rest. Patterns, previews, provides, and promises. Uh, Could have had a fifth point, just didn't. I think we have enough to talk about, though. First, God patterns rest, and he does this in Genesis chapter 2. God patterns rest. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested, 
Or we could say, if we didn't fully translate it, and God Sabbathed. Because Sabbath is a Hebrew word, and it can appear as either a noun or a verb. Here in Genesis 2, it appears twice as the word translated rested. We read it verse 2, read it again in verse 3. Every word in every language has a range of meaning. Uh, and that's true here as well. Listen to what one author wrote about this word, this word of this idea, really, of, of Sabbath. The word actually means cease more than rest as understood today. It is not a word that refers to remedying exhaustion after a tiring week of work. Rather, it describes, I like this, the enjoyment of accomplishment, the celebration of completion. The enjoyment of accomplishment, the celebration of completion. I just always end up going back to mowing lawns. I, I, I've always liked being paid to mow other people's lawns, and I've never really liked mowing my lawn. However, the thing that I like about mowing a lawn is when you're done, if you've done a good job, and you look at it, you're like, boy, that looks good. Right? There's a lot of jobs that's just, that, that's not the case. Kind of like you preach a sermon, and then it's kind of like, okay, what do we do now? Let's start again. Like, but where are the lines? Like what, what the lawn mowing lines? They don't exist. That's, that's yet to be seen. But that's but sitting back and looking, being like, yeah, that looks good. That's what I think this term is communicating. On the seventh day of the creation week, God did not collapse in exhaustion to catch his breath. Uh, one time I had three yards of dirt delivered, and they dumped it in our front yard, and we needed it in our backyard. That's the only place that they would deliver it to. And so, you know, I'm a strapping young man, or used to be, and so I got my wheelbarrow, and I got my shovel, and in one night I grabbed as many of the loads of that dirt to wheel it to my backyard as possible. And then the next day, it was like, I don't know, that night collapsed in exhaustion and felt it. Kind of like, I am no longer... Uh, well, I sit. I sit a lot. And I wasn't sitting that night, but then I did. Oh, right? Collapsing, not what happened with God on the seventh day. It was just like, oh, my back. Oh, my arms. That's not God, right? It's ridiculous. He's the all-powerful creator. Psalm 121, we read that the one who keeps Israel will never slumber nor sleep. He does not grow weary or exhausted like we do. God wasn't worn out, but he did rest. He did cease from his creative work. Let me repeat what I said a few weeks ago. That God's rest here in Genesis focuses on him concluding his work and reigning over his work. So when you think of God resting, don't think God in his lazy boy. Instead, think sat on his throne. He finished his work, and then he looked over it in enjoyment. Readers of Genesis 1 have frequently been left with questions uh, about the duration of the creation week, right? How long did it take, or, or why did it take this long, or how could it take this long? I don't know if you remember, but I asked, you know, today people are often asking, like, how could it be so short? Like, how could this get done in only six or seven days? That's the question that we ask, but historically that's not been the question. It has had to do with the duration of the creation week, but for, I think, for centuries or longer, people are like, why did it take so long? Why did, why did God, six days, seven, what? 
Why, why, why that? Why one day? Why one hour? Why one minute? Why one second, right? It wasn't because God was limited in what he needed to do. God did not require any amount of time to create everything. He could have done it instantly, but that's not what we read in Genesis 1. He worked during the day, then he stopped at night. Well, we have to do that, right? Because we don't have enough daylight to work and we get tired. So we have to take a break every evening. Did God get tired? Did he need to go to sleep? No. So that's not the reason why he stops every day. Did it take him six days to complete it? Did he need that amount of time? No. Did he then have to take a break because, boy, that was a lot of work and I need to rest in exhaustion from those type of things? No, that's not what happened. So why does he do this? Why does God follow this pattern? Stopping at night, resuming work the next day, repeating this over the course of six days, and then resting on the seventh. Well, since it wasn't for God's sake, he didn't need to do it that way. It must have been for our sake. Or more specifically, it was for Israel's sake. God was providing a background to the rest on the seventh day command that they had already been living under in the wilderness. Genesis 1 is shaped by God through Moses to provide an example or an analogy of God's work week for his people to follow. We need a week. So God presents his work week as this pattern for us to follow, an analogy. What is that pattern? Well, work during the day, stop for the night, take a break every week. That's the pattern that they were told to follow. And then after they were following it, because again, we, I, just, I really want you to see this, right? Exodus follows Genesis in our Bibles and does that chronologically. Genesis took place before Exodus, but it wasn't written before the events of Exodus took place. So they were living out Exodus when they read Genesis. So we can't flip that or we're going to miss out the understanding of what they have from this passage. As we already discussed a few weeks ago, a month ago, genuine Bible-believing Christians can and do disagree about the proper way to understand these creation days in Genesis 1 and then into this portion of Genesis 2. Do they have to be literal 24-hour days, or can they be longer periods of time? Among Christians, these are often not questions of what God could have done, We could lob that as accusations. Oh, you think God is limited in this? No. They are questions about what God did do. Again, if you're like, it was definitely, if you you hold with absolute stringency, stringency, and I have no problem with you doing so, it had to be 26, (laughs) I don't know anybody holds that, six 24-hour days. It had to be. I would be like, well, no, it didn't have to be. If it was... It was because God chose to do it that way. It could have been instantaneous. I have no doubt that the point of the seven days of the creation week in Genesis 1 is to provide an analogy or pattern of work and rest to be followed by the Israelites. That's why the creation account here isn't instantaneous and why it didn't take eight days or 13 days or a month, according to this passage. God is providing a pattern of work and rest. And to some Christians, that's the only point of the seven days. And it doesn't need to be understood literally, and I could get into literally again. 
But to other Christians, it does need to be understood as literal 24-hour days or what, 144 hours, that's not the right math, whatever it is, in order for the pattern to stand. I am more concerned with understanding the text accurately than I am about taking it literally, right? What do I mean? Uh, Jesus said, I'm the door, right? Well, no, not literally, but, but we can believe that accurately. You see? That's, again, why I kind of take issues with that literally word, especially because everybody now, like, literally doesn't mean literally, and that was a whole rant that we talked about. And so, like, definitely 24-hour days, it has to be for the pattern to stand, or, like, what he's doing is he's, he's framing what he did in the course of a work week as an analogy, and it didn't have to be six literal 24-hour days. I'm okay with either position, I really am, as long as what is maintained is that God is creator and his word is true. But I think inside of those two guiding principles, both positions can stand. What is the pattern of God's creation week? God worked. So his image bearers must and do work. God rested, so we must and do rest. God worked more than he rested. We should do the same. God didn't need to be reminded to go back to work, but we do. Uh, God doesn't need rest, but we do. Oh, how we fall short of the pattern of work and rest that God has given us. It's like whatever God says and gifts to us, we always mess it up. We always do it wrong. We misuse and abuse both work and rest for ourselves and others. Uh, we, I find myself, like, whenever I'm supposed to be working, it's when I want to be resting. And whenever I'm supposed to be resting is when I want to be working. It's just like, man, what are those wires crossed for? I'm a sinner. That's why. We either overwork or we underwork. Some of us take too much rest for ourselves, which really makes, is at other people's expense. If I refuse to work... What I'm doing is requiring others to work more than they should for my sake, to take care of me. That can happen on a, on a broad level, in a country or culture. It can happen on a family level, happen in a church level. Well, others of us give too much rest to others at our expense, refusing work to them and refusing rest to us. Both are imbalances. Right? You refuse to work, that's not following God's pattern. If you refuse to rest, it's not following God's pattern. And it's robbing opportunities of other people to work. So if you're doing more than you should, maybe there's nothing left to do. That's not following God's pattern. We also run into the difficulty in our fallen world that neither work nor rest ever satisfy us. Our work is never permanently done. Laundry Dishes, lawn mowing, man, he has to put in turf instead, right? Like, get those beautiful lines and never have to do it again. Never done, and we never get enough rest. You ever gotten enough rest? You get enough rest as a parent, you go downstairs, you find out that you took too much rest. It's almost like, with this frustration of, of work, this frustration of rest, it's almost like there's supposed to be something else. It's almost like all of this is pointing to something more. Uh, and there is something more. 
When you look at our passage, you would just read, starting Genesis 1, read your way down. You can't help but see that the seventh day is different from the rest, and, and it's a big deal. First of all, I need to correct uh, a, a mistake that I said or, or maybe lack of clarification. In discussing the creation on day six, I'm pretty sure I said that that, uh, that day, day six, was the climax of creation. Uh, and in one sense, you, you can see that because nothing else is created after humanity. But to say that, that the creation of humanity is the climax of creation really misses the story. Because it's not where it ends. The climax, post the creation of humanity, is the day of God's rest. That is the climax of the creation week. That's the true conclusion. And then we look at the previous six days and we follow predictable patterns of creation and evaluation. God said it was and it was good. Said it was and it was good. Happens all six days. Then we get to the seventh day. There's no let there be anything. There's no and there was anything. In fact, no words are spoken at all. Something different is happening here. And then finally, perhaps most significantly, did you notice in reading this that there is no end to God's seventh day? Days one two through six, and there was evening and there was morning the nth day. But what about day seven? According to the text, the sun never sets on the seventh day. There's no evening, there's no morning. The text just stops, and then Moses moves on to the next section. It's almost as if there is no end to the rest that God entered into on the seventh day. And there's more to come on that. So first, God patterns rest. Then God previews rest in the Mosaic law. God previews rest to Israel in the law. Uh, did this, and we probably go into a few others. I think we can summarize it in three ways, though. Uh, first, in God previewed rest through ceremonies. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, we read in the Ten Commandments, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For, or I think we could translate it, just like in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Again, I think that he's pointing, right, there's this an analogical or analogy type connection between their work week and God's work week. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I'm sure we're all familiar with the law's requirement of a Sabbath day, one day, uh, out of seven for rest. But did you know that the law, the same law, required of the same people a Sabbath year? One year out of every seven. Six years of work, one year of rest. Leviticus 25, it says, for six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in, it, gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. And this Sabbath year was as of much significance as the Sabbath days commanded in the Mosaic law. For the length of Israel's captivity and exile was determined by the Sabbath years that they ignored. They never practiced it. 
and God kept record. And then he gave the land the rest that his people refused to give it. Talked about in 2 Chronicles 36. God previewed rest for Israel in the law through ceremonies. He also previewed rest to Israel through the Exodus. When Moses restated the Ten Commandments to the second generation of Israelites, those who were children or born in the wilderness, in Deuteronomy 5, because you have the Ten Commandments given in Exodus 20, you have them restated in a whole other ceremony in Deuteronomy chapter 5. The Sabbath command reads pretty much the same until the conclusion, where in Exodus, it's for the Lord created in six days. But in Deuteronomy 5, it says this, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Here, God does not root the Sabbath in the creation week. He roots it in the Exodus, saying something like this. Do you guys remember how hard you worked as slaves in Egypt? I have freed you from that. I have given you rest from slavery. You must celebrate and share that rest weekly with everyone. You must make sure that your slaves are resting because you were slaves and I gave you rest. So this preview is through ceremonies, Sabbath day, Sabbath years, also previewed through the Exodus. And then another passage, a couple other passages, we'll just look, I'll briefly mention one, that God also previewed rest for the Israelites in the Mosaic law through the movement into the promised land. This can be seen, again, in a number of different passages. Psalm 95 is the one I would have you write down. Psalm 95 is probably the most significant for us in referencing this. Toward the end of a wonderful psalm, God speaks of the first generation of Israelites whom he brought out of Egypt. He says this, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest, right? The rest of the promised land. And so you see this preview of the ceremonies, of the exodus itself, and of the entrance into the promised land. All is a preview of God's rest for them. So the promised land, the land of Canaan, was part of the rest that God had for his people, but even that was only a preview of God's rest. So we've seen the pattern of God's rest. We see the preview of God's rest in the Old Testament. And then if we flip a whole bunch of pages, please flip a whole bunch of pages. Flip a whole bunch of pages. I don't hear the flipping. You're not all tapping. I see the Bible's in your lap. Matthew chapter 11. Could somebody just like make the sound? I cannot hear this. Are you just turning? Thank you. That was much better. We see in Matthew chapter 11, toward the end of this chapter, We see that God provides rest through Christ. We see that in the Gospels. God has patterned rest in Genesis 2. God has previewed rest in the Mosaic Law for the Israelites. God has provided rest through Christ in the Gospels. I'm going to read a portion of this. Try not to get too sidetracked in preaching it. I want you to follow along, and once again, please ignore weird chapter divisions, because this section definitely flows across from chapter 11 into chapter 12. Jesus said, 
verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus gives us a promise to offer rest to us that only he could provide. Rest for our souls. But he demonstrates the reality of that spiritual rest through also providing physical rest. These passages are connected. Matthew put them together like this on purpose. So his disciples pluck and eat the grain on the Sabbath with his permission. It doesn't say it, but I imagine he probably was plucking it and eating it as well. Maybe not. He definitely didn't have a problem with it. The Pharisees are offended, for Jesus is breaking their rules that are there supposedly to guard the Sabbath from people. And he opposes them in the strongest of terms. The Son of Man, which is what Jesus calls himself, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Then he ties all of it together in the synagogue on the Sabbath. They think they're setting him up, but they are really just kind of teeing it up for him. They think, that, they, they think that they've got him. So they ask, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he answers, remember, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Because that's what the Sabbath is about. Jesus heals this man, providing rest for this suffering man. You cannot miss that. This passage just doesn't make any sense. Jesus provided rest for this suffering man which is the whole point of the Sabbath, right? Easing the suffering that we have in finite bodies in a fallen world. Jesus in his goodness brings physical rest. Why does he do that? He provides physical rest so that you can see and he could feel the promise that he had made of rest for your souls. 
Right? That's the connection Jesus is making in the miracles, right? It's like the, the paralyzed guy. This is what I was not going to do, right? So Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Well, who can forgive sins? Thank you for making my point. So that you know I can forgive sins, so you know I have power over spiritual things, he says to the man who is paralyzed, rise, take up your bed and walk. So if, and the guy does. Why? Because Jesus can forgive sins. I will provide rest for your souls if you come to me. Well, how do I know that? Because I fed my disciples and I healed that guy's hands. Come to me if you are weary. That's what Jesus is doing here. This is the goodness of the God who gifts rest to his people starting all the way back in Genesis. God gifts rest. And the rest that God patterned on the seventh day of the creation week and previewed to Israel in the law, Christ has purchased, that would be the fifth point, I guess. Christ has purchased and provided for us by his sinless life and his sacrificial death on the cross. In his life and in his death, Jesus provides rest for us, and he does that by fulfilling the law for us. Right? Obeying what it said to do, doing what it said to do, not doing what it said to not do, and then taking the curse that the law had for those who didn't do what it said to do and did what it said not to do, fulfilling the law and taking the curse of sin on his people, fulfilling the whole law for us, the whole law, including the Sabbath. Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath for us. And so we are no longer under the law and we are no longer obligated to keep the Sabbath. But what about the Christian Sabbath on the Lord's Day? Don't say amen to that. Because I would say that doesn't exist. I would say there is no such thing as the Christian Sabbath on the Lord's Day. Nowhere in the New Testament is the connection made between the Sabbath, which was always on Saturday, and the Lord's Day, which is referenced once in Revelation, probably referring to a Sunday. No connection is ever made between the two of those in the entirety of the New Testament. Outside of the Gospels, the Sabbath is barely talked about in the rest of the New Testament. And it is never talked about something that New Covenant believers are obligated to keep or observed. Never, never. Not rarely never. Never, never. Furthermore, in the first couple centuries of the early church, authors referred to the Sabbath for Jews on Saturday and the Lord's Day for Christians on Sundays as two distinct days. They did not link them, those who followed the teaching of the apostles. It wasn't actually until much later, like the 17th century later, that the argument for a Christian Sabbath observance on Sunday appears as we commonly think about it. And to be unambiguous about this, I disagree with both Westminster and the Second London Baptist Confessions about this. I don't think that they're right. And lest I seem unreformed, if that matters, I think Calvin's discussion on this is very helpful. So feel free to read Institutes, Book 2, Chapter 8, on the Fourth Commandment, where Calvin says it's not the same thing. Sabbath is done. Lord's Day is here, we move forward. So I am reformed. 
back to the New Testament's discussion on the Sabbath, because that's more significant than the Apostolic Fathers or Calvin's Institutes or the Westminster Confession or the Second London Baptist or anything that Sproul, MacArthur, whoever your favorite teacher is. New Testament, in Galatians, in Romans, in Colossians, Paul takes pains to emphasize that customs and traditions from the Old Covenant law are no longer binding on New Covenant Christians. We see that most specifically with Paul's arguments against circumcision, something demanded without exception for all the Old Covenant Israelite males, but now circumcision has been fulfilled in Christ, and no longer is it legally binding upon us. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5 about those Christians who require circumcision because of the Old Covenant law. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, not every circumcised man. Every man who takes circumcision is something that he must do as a follower of God or a follower of Christ. Every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law. They were binding themselves to something that Christ had freed them from and something that Christ did not bind them to. And by doing so, they were moving backward rather than moving forward. And when we move backward, rather than moving forward, we miss what Christ has for us by way of fulfillment. And that's what's happening to them. You're separating yourself from Christ by moving backward into a ceremonial obligation to the law, rather than moving forward to fulfillment. Same idea Keith was talking about last week with dominion. As Christians, we are not pursuing our own personal dominion. We are participating in Christ's ever-expanding kingdom dominion. His rule and reign. And earlier in Galatians 4, Paul commented on this Galatians problem that evidenced itself in circumcision in another way, where he says in Galatians 4.10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. This must be a reference to those ceremonial days of the old covenant Jewish calendar, which clearly included the weekly Sabbath day. Clearly included that. If we accept Sabbath as binding like that, on Saturday or on Sunday, how are we not doing the same thing as they were doing with circumcision? How? And if we bind ourselves to the Old Covenant Sabbath, then we will miss out on the fulfillment of the Sabbath rest God promises to us through Christ. Don't move backward. Scripture flows forward into the fulfillment that Christ has. Circumcision of the flesh? Who cares? We have circumcision of the heart now. Sabbath rest on a particular day that we have to bind ourselves to? Who cares? We have the rest that Christ provides for us. Fulfillment of the Sabbath rest that God promises to us through Christ. And that's the fourth point, that God patterned rest God previewed rest, God provided rest. We also see God promises rest to his people. And we see this in the book of Hebrews. I feel like my whole sermon was previewed between Fred's prayer, Robbie's introduction to songs and stuff that Keith said. It was kind of like, guys, like, leave me something to say. I always find something to say, though. God promises his rest to his people in the book of Hebrews. Whatever rest we enjoy on this earth, physical or spiritual rest, whenever we enjoy that rest. It is not the sum total of the rest that God promises for us. There is a permanent rest that we wait for as God's people. And that rest 
That rest then and there is superior to anything we have ever known or could ever know here and now. That rest then so much better than any rest here and now. Sidney Carton was right. It was a far, far better rest that we go to than we have ever known. The author of Hebrews makes that point in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. Those chapters, which I don't remember how many sermons we preached to that. I'm sure it's still on the website. If you want to be like, what do you think about this passage in more detail? I don't remember, but you could go and hear whatever I said. I don't think that I disagree with anything that I said then. Uh, Maybe I do. But in those chapters, Hebrews 3 and 4, we are pointed back to Psalm 95 again. Talked about Psalm 95 already this morning. Pointed back to Psalm 95, and we're warned not to be disobedient and unbelieving like that first generation of Israelites in the wilderness. That was the first generation that missed out on God's previewed rest in the promised land. Both that physical rest in the promised land and their disobedient unbelief were all just shadows pointing to a greater rest that called for faith in greater promises. So the author writes, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And he says this, verse 3 of chapter 4, For we who have believed, we, we, you, enter that rest. And a bit later he goes on, If Joshua had given them rest, if that was it, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So we as Christians, new covenant believers, we have entered a rest that somehow still remains to be entered. Do we have the rest? Yeah, Christ provided it for us. Do we have all of it? No. Is this already? Not yet. We see that so many different times in Scripture, and it's true of rest. You have entered it by faith, but you haven't entered it by sight, maybe? You haven't experienced the fullness of it? We already have a guarantee of our place in that rest, our citizenship in that promised land. But we do not fully enjoy it yet. Like Abraham and the other patriarchs, chapter 11, we too are strangers and exiles on the earth. We too are seeking a homeland, a better country that is a heavenly one. As nice as your house or your land is, it's not the fulfillment of the rest that God offers you. And in chapter 12, we read that we as believers, hear this, as the verb tense is always important, we have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You looked around recently? Did you drive in through Hurricane today? Does it look like the heavenly Jerusalem? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think that's the case, but it says we have come to it. And then later it says that it is a city that is to come. We have entered by faith, and we will enter. Uh, we have come to the city, but it's a city that's yet to come. We have entered the rest that God promised, but it still awaits the fulfillment of that. So what does all this mean for you and me today? We as humans were made with a longing for rest 
the longer I live, and not like an age thing, but just like uh, the more days and months and years that I experience on this earth, the more I feel a longing for rest. And I don't just mean physically. I mean spiritually. I am tired of battling my flesh. I am tired of it. I'm tired of sinning against God and against others. And I'm tired of not being more tired of sinning against God and others. I'm tired of reading the news and hearing story after story of people captured by sin. And people who sin against others in horrific ways. How long, O Lord? Give us rest. I feel deep in my soul a groaning and a longing for something more. Something that isn't vanity of vanity like Solomon talked about Ecclesiastes. Lawns that get mowed and need to be mowed again. And work that is done. And then it's just like, what was even the point of that? It was like, let's earn a bunch of money. Why? I'm going to die. This is like, maybe I'll give, it to my, I'll give it to my kids if there's any left, unless there's some other bill that happens. And maybe they'll be great like they are now. Maybe they'll be jerks. And then I build all this stuff and I'm going to give it to these idiots and what are they going to do with it? I don't think you are idiots. Most of them are watching online, right? So, but don't be idiots, you know? Like, but that's what Solomon talks about. He's just kind of like banging his head against the wall. Be like, is this it? It's not it. No, it isn't. Yeah, thank you. Right? He got it. This isn't it. And I just want more. And I think you want more. You're nodding. You agree with me. Here's the thing, whether you recognize, like, whatever that is, whether you think, oh, maybe if I just work harder, or maybe if I work more, or maybe if I rest more, maybe if I rest harder, maybe if I earn more, maybe if I earn less, whatever it is, like, you, the longing that you have is not met on this earth. It is for something more. It is, you are made and are longing for the eternal rest with God that you were made to enjoy. Nothing here can satisfy it. You will not find this rest on your own. You can't get enough sleep. You just can't. You can't stay long enough on vacation. You can't even stay permanently on vacation and actually find the rest that you were made to enjoy. And you can only distract yourself with your phone and numb your feelings and longings for only so long. We who, we who labor, we who are heavy laden, we must come to Christ for the rest that he has provided for our souls. And then we must wait for his return and for the permanent rest that he has provided, the fulfillment of his promise. See, starting in Genesis 2, we see flowing across scripture that God patterns, previews, provides, and promises rest. So what do we do with that? Well, we work and we rest physically because God has created us to do both. Uh, but these are both to be received as gifts, not as burdens and not as legal demands. Try to think, what, is that, what does that look like practically for me? Well, as an elder here at Risen King, I, I see that applying to how much I would take on myself and how much I, I would require of others. I mean, there are times when we need to work or serve when we don't want to. That's just true. We don't only work because we want to work. <laughs> we work because we need to work. And sometimes you don't want to, and it's just like, that's nice. I don't care. <laughs> right? It's like, put your big boy pants on. Go to work anyway. Right? That, that needs to happen. And, and honestly, sometimes that needs to happen in the church, too. It's like, sometimes, I'm kind of like, I don't feel like it. 
I don't care. Like, work, serve. And there are times when we need to rest, even though we want to work and serve. Both of those things need to be said. And, and really, whichever one you liked better, the other one is one you needed to hear. If you're like, preach it, get them lazy people working, be like, maybe you need to take a break. And if, if you're just kind of like, ah, rest, yes. It's like, well, maybe you need to get to work. Because we fall in these ditches on both sides. And it happens in the church. And both of these responses can prove, what, both of these, okay? Working when you don't want to and resting when you don't want to, both of them can prove that we are weak and needy and finite and dependent on God. Because in the church and in the world, it's never a sense in which you can work hard enough or demonstrate rest enough to accomplish God's purposes. God accomplishes God's purposes. So we can work and we can preach and do all sorts of stuff and then I'll, I will, I'll just die someday. And somebody will just pick up. And how is that not a problem? Because I'm not the one at work. Thank God I'm not the one responsible for like the work of the, of the gospel ministry happening here. Neither are you, it's the spirit. So we are weak and needy. We are dependent on God for these things. So I think that we should not burn ourselves out or others if we can help it. Just continually pushing, 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 pushing until we, we've passed the point of what we can do. I don't think that we should do that, but sometimes you can't help it. And God's strength is sufficient for us when we can't help it. That's as an elder. What about as a, as a husband, as a father? Well, I need to strive. I need to work to encourage and provide physical rest for my family, especially Leanne. Sometimes that will look like helping. Sometimes when I've worked and I want to rest, I need to just work more. And work more so that she can rest. And other times, I need to encourage her to rest physically, even though the work isn't done. Because we don't rest because the work is done. We rest because we need it. And it's an act of dependence on the God who doesn't need to rest. And sometimes as a father, that'll be providing opportunities for my kids to enjoy the world that God has given them. And sometimes it'll be keeping them from that because they too need to not have a breakneck pace of doing to feel fulfilled. I need to learn that for me. I need to learn that for you. I need to learn that for my family. One other scenario as a, I have it listed as, as a consumer because this is something that Christians have disagreed on. Again, like, back to July, freedom of conscience, let me present a scenario. Because some are like, well, should restaurants be open on Sundays? And I can see God patterning, previewing, providing, and promising rest. I can see it going in two different directions. I could see, as a consumer, not eating at a restaurant on a Sunday or shopping at a store because I long for everyone to be worshiping with a church family, and I wish that they had that opportunity and so I could see the case being made, don't uh, be a patron of that store to encourage them to continue in business. I can see that. Maybe that's how you feel. But I can also see a different scenario. I can see a scenario of going to a restaurant that honestly will be open anyway, befriending the waiter or the waitress, working to provide for herself and her family. Well, she shouldn't have to. I agree she shouldn't have to, but she has to. Befriending her, 
and then shattering this stupid stereotype of stingy Christians who refuse to tip on Sunday afternoons. Man, shame on us, right? You shouldn't have to work, and so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bless you. What? Right? You know that stereotype exists, right? That Sunday afternoon shift is the worst because the church crowd runs in and then like drops that million dollar track thing with change on a dollar? What if instead we were kind and patient to the overworked serving staff? What if instead we asked them how we were doing and actually cared about what the answer was? And then we prayed with them and for them and maybe we go back to the same restaurant over and over to build a relationship with them. And then we tip them generously to help share some of the goodness of Christ's rest, which has physical and spiritual elements. So we extend and share some of the rest that God has given us to try to ease the physical suffering, to bridge into a spiritual relationship so that we have a context for conversation to share the real rest. I see both. And if your conscience is kind of like, I can't go to the restaurant, then don't go to the restaurant. I'm not trying to set up a new law. It's like, but if you go to the restaurant, right? Like, is it a ministry opportunity? Or is it just kind of like, oh, can you believe that my fries were cold again? Who cares about your cold fries, right? Love them. They need rest. So many scenarios we could walk through on these things. Uh, elder, father, husband as a consumer. Most importantly, though, the unending rest. We, we work and we rest growing out of these things, but most importantly, the rest that God entered into in Genesis 2 points us forward to the promise of us resting with him, so we must hope. We must long for what is to come when we are with Christ, and we must anticipate it, and we must pray for it, and we must share the good news of Christ's rest with a world of weary sinners around us. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. And in that new creation, we will enjoy God's rest forever. Lord Jesus Christ, you are our rest. Thank you. Amen.